Well, one of the great joys of, of preaching expositionally is we get to go through the Bible chapter by verse, chapter by verse, and, and go all the way through. And, and we've been in uh, Luke's Gospel account now for almost two years, no, over two years. Um, and in God's providence, um, this is where we arrive um, today here at the end of, of Luke chapter 23. And then also in God's providence on Sunday morning, we'll be looking at uh, and studying the resurrection from Luke 24, uh, 1 to 12. So again, we'd invite you to come back and, uh, and really to, um, we're, we're focusing, um, of course, on the, on the death of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and, uh, and on his resurrection on Sunday morning. And, and again, we gather together every Sunday morning to, to remember the resurrection of our Lord and Savior. But, but let's now just, as we consider this passage, um, may the Lord work in your heart to, to see afresh the reality of what is taking place here and the, the eternal spiritual implications of, of this event. Uh, Luke chapter 23, verses 44 um, to 56. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea, and he was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action. He was looking for the kingdom of God. And this man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was a day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with, with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. This is the word of our Lord. May he write its eternal truths upon our hearts for the building of his church and for the glory of his name. Please be seated. And let's pray again together. Almighty God, we come before you in wonder at the events that took place on Calvary some 2,000 years ago. Events that were pivotal in the life of all humanity and for those who are trusting in Christ, pivotal in our lives as they will be for all eternity. Lord, we rejoice in the cross of Christ. We pray that through the power of your Holy Spirit, you would open our eyes to see these things as they truly are, not just as, as uh, events that took place in history a long time ago, let alone as, as figments of people's imagination, but as the reality. Lord, as, a, as a, a profound spiritual reality, help us to see what took place and help us, Lord, to see Christ and help us to see ourselves before Christ. May you open our spiritual eyes that we may respond with repentance and faith and worship before Jesus Christ who though he was crucified, rose on the third day and lives and reigns and will one day return. So we pray, even as we think about these things and meditate upon these things this morning, we pray, come Lord Jesus. And come into our hearts now, we pray through the power of your spirit. Amen. It has been said that the eyes are the window to the soul. The eyes are the window to the soul. And this, this saying is, is commonly understood to mean that, that by looking into someone's eyes, you can peer into their inner thoughts and feelings. Well, I don't know how true that is. I've, I've seen some, some pretty secretive eyes, and I've seen some pretty deceptive eyes who can just look you in the eye and lie to you. And this quote has been variously attributed to Shakespeare, uh, or the, the Roman orator Cicero, or Leonardo da Vinci, and, and to the Bible. But the Bible says pretty much exactly the opposite. 
In Matthew 6, 22 and 23, Jesus said that the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, that your whole body is full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? So Jesus is not saying here that when you look into someone's eyes, you can see into their soul, but that your soul looks out through your eyes in order to see. Jesus is speaking of your spiritual eyes. And if your spiritual eyes are healthy, light will enter into your soul. The whole world sees the cross of Christ through one of two kinds of spiritual eyes. Healthy spiritual eyes or unhealthy spiritual eyes. Your eyes are the window of your soul, but again, you do not look in through the window. You look out from the window. Your soul looks out. And how you see events and how you see specifically these events that we're looking at here this morning, how you see these events and how you respond to them will determine the state of your soul. You need to see the cross of Christ with healthy spiritual eyes. You need to be cross-eyed. If you want to clearly see and understand the cross, you need to go to Scripture. As I said this past Sunday, the entire Bible points to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. The Old Testament points ahead to the cross of Christ. And the New Testament describes the cross of Christ in the Gospels and then looks back to the cross of Christ while simultaneously looking ahead to the return of Christ. So we, we've seen throughout our studies in Luke how the, the, the cross is central, crucial to understanding of Luke. We've seen this in the, the many prophecies of the crucifixion in Luke's gospel account. Many specific prophecies and, and allusions that, that Jesus makes and, and Luke makes towards what is coming, towards this very event. And so it's surprising that once you get to Luke's description of the crucifixion in Luke 23, that he really doesn't go into much detail describing it. And the same is, is true of the crucifixion, of, or sort of, the, of his death. They actually, actually just says, he breathed his last. That's all that Luke says in order to describe the death of Jesus. Luke has masterfully narrated his gospel account through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And, and so spiritually inspired. Luke is the, is the narrator par excellence, and he is also a theologian par excellence. And as I explained on Sunday, Luke's, Luke tells us what is happening at the cross with the, 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 the crucifixion, the death of Jesus, and, and not primarily through the details of the death of Christ, but through the words and deeds of those who are present at the death of Christ. So think about the range of, of responses we've seen so far. The, the crowds watch the, the rulers sneer, the soldiers mock, one criminal blasphemes, and another criminal repents. This past Sunday, we, we looked at the first part of this passage, verses 44 to 46, what God said and did. So we saw that last week, I'm going to review that briefly, and then we're going to go and spend our most of our time focusing this morning on verses 47 to 49, what the eyewitnesses said and did, and then in verses 50 to, 60, 50, sorry, 50 to 56, what the disciples said said and did. So first of all, we need to briefly review verses 44 to 46, what God said and did. We're seeing God's response to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Luke describes miraculous signs that took place that day. The, the other gospel accounts include others. We talked about those on Sunday, but this morning I'm just going to, by way of review, just going to focus on these. First, Luke tells us in verse 44, that the sky turned dark for three hours. Between the sixth hour and the ninth hour, the sun's light failed. So the sixth hour is noon, and the ninth hour is three o'clock in the afternoon. So for three hours, the, the brightest part of the day, the sun's light failed. Now, darkness in the scriptures often refers to judgment and points to judgment, God's judgment. You can see this in the prophecies of the, the day of judgment, which is which is often described as a day of darkness, where God will judge his enemies and will cast them into hell. But on this day of darkness, on the day of darkness at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, God the Father 
treated God the Son like an enemy to deliver his people from hell. On the cross, Jesus Christ absorbed the wrath of God for all of God's people for all time. Jesus Christ, the sinless Son of God in human flesh, the ultimate sacrifice, suffered the wrath of God during these hours on the cross so that you do not have to suffer the wrath of God for all eternity. Those who turn to Christ, trusting that he died for their sins, will never experience the cup of God's wrath because God drank, the, Jesus Christ, God the Son in human flesh, drank the cup of God's wrath down to the dregs for them. If you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you will never experience judgment, no matter how guilty you are, because Jesus Christ was pronounced guilty in your place. So that's the first sign, the darkness. And then in, in verse 45, we saw another sign that reveals God's response. At the moment of Jesus' death, the 60-foot-high, 4-inch-thick curtain in the temple that separated the holy place from the most holy place was torn in two from top to bottom. The most holy place was, was the, the center of the temple in Jerusalem. And the curtain that, that separated these, these two rooms, the holy place from the most holy place, showed how holy God is, how separate God is from sin, how separate God is from all creation. Again, we touched on this last week, but, but on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would go into, into the Holy of Holies with fire from the altar and with, with coals from the altar and with the blood of the animal sacrifice. And he would, would sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice on the Ark of the Covenant, specifically on the mercy seat, to make atonement for sin. To make atonement for your sin and for my sin. Because you see, that those sacrifices pointed to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. This was a shadow. Nobody was actually ever forgiven through the blood of bulls and goats. This, this pointed to Jesus Christ, our high priest, who shed his own blood for your sin and for my sin. Listen to Hebrews 10, 19 and 20. We have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. So through Christ, you and I now have access to God. Jesus Christ fulfilled the earthly temple and all that it represented. And those who have faith in Jesus Christ now have open access to God through Jesus Christ. You can now come to God as your heavenly Father because God sent His Son to die in your place. Brothers and sisters, you have access to God. God does not just invite you. God commands you to come before Him as your son, as His son, as His daughter. To the death of His Son, our Lord and Savior. You are now a child of God through what the Son of God accomplished for you on the cross. Finally, by way of review, last Sunday we, we saw that Jesus Christ responded as well to his own death. Obviously, in what he said he did and did there as the response of God the Son to his own death. Luke tells us in verse 46 that, that Jesus called out with a loud voice saying, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And we talked about how just calling out with a loud voice in itself was a sign of who Jesus is because Remember that, that in crucifixion, the cause of death was asphyxiation. So gradually, the, the, the victim's life would ebb out as they, they could not get air into their lungs. So just, just crying out with a loud voice shows clearly who Jesus is, that he is indeed the conquering king, even from the cross. And now consider the words he shouted. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. So Jesus here was consciously quoting and fulfilling Psalm 31.5, where David said, Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. So Jesus here is, is showing us a profound expression of faith as he trusted in God's faithful hands. 
It was, an ex- it was an expression of his faith that God would receive him. So it's, it's also an expression of the faith that God would not just receive him, but would also resurrect him. It's a profound expression of Jesus' faithfulness right to the end. He clung to God through the whole process of crucifixion and suffering for the sins of his people. And if you are trusting in Christ, that perfect faithfulness of Jesus Christ is credited to your account. Not only did Jesus die as, as the sin bearer, suffering God's wrath for his people, but he also died as the righteous substitute, substituting his life for ours and the fact that, that all of his faithful obedience, every perfect prayer, every act of love, every act of obedience, every act of faithfulness, even to the point of of his death. You're trusting in Jesus Christ. That is credited to your account. This is the the profound transaction of the gospel. Your sin is imputed to Christ, and Christ's righteousness is imputed to you. It's glorious. There, There is nothing more glorious in all creation. Jesus Christ was also revealing his intimate relationship with God the Father. Here here he was, experiencing the wrath of God, yet consciously calling God Father. Even in his day of darkness, he knew that God his Father was present. He was forsaken, but only temporarily forsaken, and never utterly forsaken. And so this is the cry of faith, as Jesus Christ died as the innocent sufferer, faithful to the end, committing his soul to his heavenly Father. Briefly consider how he died. Having said this, he breathed his last. He was was demonstrating that he had authority and that he had power to lay down his life and he had power to take his life up again, as he had said in John 10, 18. Christ died not as we die when our hour has come, for we do not have the power to add or subtract one second from our span of life. But Jesus died fully in authority and sovereign control over life over all life. This is, he was not only, this will bend your mind, but Jesus Christ was not only sustaining his own life, but all life. While he was there on the cross, he was upholding the universe by his word of power. It's not that Jesus Christ was compelled to die or that he could not help but die for the purposes of accomplishing all that was necessary for our salvation. He chose to give up his life. So then, having shown us God's response to the crucifixion of Christ, Luke now shows us the response of three groups of people who are gathered around as eyewitnesses of these events. A centurion praises God and confesses Jesus' innocence. A crowd mourns and goes home. The disciples stood a distance watching, but then have an opportunity to follow Jesus in obedience and faith. Three groups of people. They all saw the same thing, but they had three distinct responses because they saw Jesus Christ through different spiritual eyes and then interpreted those events differently and responded differently. Three groups of people, but only one group is presented as following through in faith. Again, these three groups of people reflect three groups of people who are are probably represented here this morning. Three types of people. May the Spirit reveal to you which type you are. May all of us, by God's grace, see the cross of Christ clearly and correctly and see ourselves and our condition clearly and correctly. So then, verses 47 to 48, what the eyewitnesses said and did. Luke now shifts to the perspective of these three groups of eyewitnesses to the death of Christ. The first eyewitnesses that mentioned is a centurion. Now, a centurion was a Roman officer who was in command of a hundred soldiers. And he would have been the ranking officer at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. He would have, would have supervised the whole thing. So he wasn't just an eyewitness. He was responsible for the crucifixion. He killed Jesus Christ. 
Luke presents him as an eyewitness in verse 47. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he, he was up close and personal. Would have been right there at the foot of the cross. John 19 tells us that the Jews had asked the Romans to break the legs of the victims on the cross to hasten their death so that their bodies could be taken down before the Sabbath. And so the Romans, under the command of the centurion, broke the legs of the two criminals, but when they got to Jesus Christ, they saw that he was already dead. So they didn't break his legs. This is the fulfillment of Exodus 12, 46, that the bones of the Passover lamb, when, when Israel was told to sacrifice a lamb when they're in, in captivity in Egypt, they were told to, to sacrifice the lamb, but not to break any of the bones of that lamb. And the destroyer, and they were to put the blood of the Passover lamb on the doors of their house. And then when the destroyer came to destroy all the firstborn in Egypt, the destroyer would pass over and would, would spare the houses where that blood was spilled, where the Passover lamb had been sacrificed. Exodus 12, 46. And Jesus, my friends, Jesus is the Passover lamb. Jesus is the Passover lamb. It was, it was a shadow. It was, a, it was typological. It pointed to his sacrifice. This is also the fulfillment of another psalm. Psalm 34, 20. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Not one of Jesus' bones are broken. They're on the cross. And John adds that one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear and that blood and water came out. Jesus would have experienced here, I'm... I'm I'm not a doctor, but we have, well, I am in a sense, but not this kind of doctor. They, they, we, we, we have a doctor here. You can ask him afterwards. The, the doctor would tell you that Jesus experienced what's called pericardial and pleural effusion. That in the, the sac around the heart and around his lungs, that, that those, the cavity was, was filled with a mixture of blood and water. And so when the soldier sticks the spear in Jesus' side and the blood and water pours out, this is proof positive that Jesus Christ was dead. You need to understand that if Christ did not die, then you and I are dead in our trespasses and sins. His death, death was necessary for your forgiveness and for mine. And in this you see the weight of sin. Your sin and mine is so heinous before the holy God that he requires nothing less than the death of God the Son incarnate to pay for it. You and I could never atone for our sin. We could never do enough good deeds to overcome the weight of our guilt before the holy God. But Jesus' death is not all that the centurion saw. He was there for the whole thing. He saw Jesus pray for those who were crucifying him. Now who knows how many crucifixions this centurion had overseen. We can be fairly certain that no victim of crucifixion had ever prayed for him in the process. The centurion saw those who were present, mocking Jesus, calling him the Christ of God, God's chosen one, and the king of the Jews. He saw the inscription, this is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. He, he saw the penitent thief declare that Jesus was innocent and come to Jesus in repentance and faith. And he saw Jesus promise this criminal that today he'd be with him in paradise. He saw the whole thing. He saw the darkness cover the land. He, he saw Jesus calling out to his heavenly Father. He saw Jesus yield his life. He was an eyewitness to the whole thing. Now what would you think? If you had his vantage point, if you saw what he saw on that Good Friday 2,000 years ago, Well, you may have not seen it personally, but you have the witness report right here in front of you. You can read in, here in Luke and, and also in, in Matthew and Mark and John 
specifically, directly, what happened to Jesus and what it means. This is the eyewitness report. And the whole scripture bears witness to this event. And you have it in the Holy Scriptures. This centurion was guilty for the crucifixion. But as he witnessed the crucifixion, his perspective of Jesus changed. It changed in response to what he saw. And so what was the centurion's verdict on Jesus now? Certainly, this man was innocent. Certainly, this man was innocent. Now, we've heard this repeatedly in Luke chapter 23. Four times we've heard Pontius Pilate say, this man is innocent. Herod said, this man is innocent. The criminal next to Jesus said, this man is innocent. And now the centurion says, this man is innocent. Jesus Christ died as the innocent, as the righteous sufferer. We're told that seven times in Luke 23. But the centurion saw more clearly than Pontius Pilate who declared Jesus innocent. How did he respond? He praised God for the innocence of the Lord Jesus Christ. This Roman soldier, right, this this member of, a, of a, an army that was, had conquered Israel and was there occupying Israel, according to the Jewish perspective, this Gentile dog praised God for the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And Matthew 27, 27 54 adds that, that he saw the earthquake at the moment of Jesus' death and the, the fact that, and also that he wasn't alone at Jesus' death. The centurion and those who were with him, who were guarding him, were, listen, were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. These Roman soldiers recognized that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. The, the supernatural signs and, and Jesus' supreme love and forgiveness made them realize that this was not any mere this wasn't even any kind of criminal hanging there. This wasn't any mere man hanging in front of them. This is, just stop and think about this. This is a remarkable statement. Now, you know, he wouldn't have, have understood in the same way that you and I do. He wouldn't have had the full, understood the full theological implications of what he was saying as Jesus is the Son of God. But, but just flip back for a moment to the end of, of Luke 22. The men of the Sanhedrin, the, the, the Jewish ruling council, demanded that Jesus answer them, saying, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, You say that I am. And then they said, What further testimony do we need? We have heard it for ourselves with our own lips. And they immediately took him out to Pilate to have him crucified. These Jews accused Jesus of committing blasphemy for admitting that he was the son of God. But now these Roman soldiers, this occupying army, army recognized that Jesus is the son of God. Now Luke often highlights the positive response of Roman soldiers to the Lord Jesus to, to highlight the hard-heartedness of the Jews, but even more, I believe, to, to reveal to Theophilus, remember that there's the man to whom Luke is writing, who was a Roman, to demonstrate the certainty of the things that he had been taught. See this in Luke 1.4. Roman soldiers responded positively, positively to the ministry of John the Baptist in Luke 3. Uh, another centurion asked Jesus to help his servant who was dying, but didn't feel worthy to have Jesus enter his home. So he said, just say the word and my servant will be healed. And Jesus commends him saying, I tell you, not even in Israel I found such faith. And Luke in in the book of Acts, describes another centurion in Acts 10, as his name is Cornelius, as a devout man who feared God with all his household, giving alms generously to the people and praying continually to God. You'd be hard-pressed to find a clear pronouncement of who Jesus is by anyone in Acts, except for perhaps 
God the Father speaking directly in the Mount of Transfiguration. Now this centurion, and while the other, and the other Roman soldiers that Matthew mentions, were at a crossroads. Recognizing who Jesus is, is one thing. But bowing, him, bowing to him in repentance and faith is quite another. So did they come to genuine saving faith? Luke doesn't tell us directly, but it, it, it seems that they were on the right track. But in my now 30 years as a Christian, I've seen many who seemed to be on the right track, but walked away from ever truly following Christ. Now I hope that I will see at least some of these soldiers numbered among the saints when Christ returns at Judgment Day. But their verdict that Jesus was innocent, that he died even though he was righteous, that he was the Son of God, is a testimony for us, an eyewitness testimony for us as to who Jesus really is. So these soldiers are also here as an example for you of, of those who have some understanding of who Jesus is but have not yet made the commitment to turn from their sins and follow him. Not yet received him as their Lord and Savior. The question before you is, is that your response to the Lord Jesus Christ and his crucifixion. Do you recognize that Jesus Christ suffered and died even though he's innocent, even though he had never sinned, even though he's perfectly righteous? Do you recognize that Jesus Christ is truly the Son of God? Do you worship God for that? Have you gone that far? Will you go the rest of the way? Will you turn away from your sin and turn to Christ seeking forgiveness? A new life in him. Well, now Luke turns to the second group, the crowds, in verse 48. And all the crowds that assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breath. Now the Jewish crowds had been curious about Jesus during his ministry. And many followed him to see the miracles and, and, and to, to hear Jesus' teaching and to benefit from his benevolence. Jesus had been drawing a crowd with his life. And now Jesus draws a crowd with his death. They were spectators for the spectacle of Jesus' crucifixion. Like the Roman soldiers, they were eyewitnesses. They saw the same things that the soldiers saw. They clearly saw Jesus die. They clearly saw the signs. They clearly saw how Jesus responded to those around him with forgiveness and compassion. They also saw how Jesus responded to his death with absolute control and with faith. So the crowd saw the same things as the soldiers, but what is their verdict? In verse 35, we saw that the crowd stood by watching. So back there they watched with indifference, but now, like the centurion, their perspective has changed. They return home beating their breasts. There is no doubt that they were moved emotionally by what had taken place. In Jewish culture and many Middle Eastern cultures, that beating one's breast is a, is a sign of, of profound and extreme grief. But remember the crowd of people and the, the women of Jerusalem who've been following Jesus back in Luke 23, 27. Just, just look back up there. As Jesus was forced to carry his cross beam through the streets, there, this, this crowd of people and these women were mourning and lamenting for him. And we spoke about this a few weeks ago, but, but the word that's translated there, mourning, also means beat. The, these women were beating their breasts, wailing over what was happening to Jesus. And what did Jesus do? He corrected and redirected their tears. He tells them not to mourn for him, but for themselves and for their children over the coming judgment. They shed many tears over Jesus, but they should have been crying for themselves. They didn't understand who Jesus was, what he came to do, or their own spiritual condition, their need to follow Christ. They were sympathetic. The crowd was following him with their feet, with their emotions, but not with their faith. Not with their faith. And the same is true for this crowd. 
This crowd is present at the cross doing the same thing as the crowds who followed Jesus to the cross. Very much, very likely at least part of the same crowd, but some of the same people would have been here as well. They, they too were mourning for Jesus when they should have been mourning over their sins. They went home beating their breasts. And so Luke is telling us here that they were, they were again, they were moved emotionally, but not moved with their lives. In response to all these things, they, they just went home. Now, like the crowds, you also will hear this message and go home. We're all going to go home afterwards. But will you just go home? Will you go back to your house and, and forget about Jesus? Will you go back to your house and, and just go back to your old life? Now, you might be here feeling sorry for what happened to Jesus. But Jesus is not calling you to mourn for him. Jesus is calling you to have faith in him. You don't get to heaven by feeling sorry for Jesus. You get to heaven by placing your faith in Jesus. You don't get to heaven by grieving over what they did to Jesus. You need to grieve over what you did to Jesus. Are you willing to acknowledge your guilt before the Holy God? Are you willing to turn away from your sin and turn to Jesus Christ? Or will you, like the crowds, just go home? We now Luke describes the response of the third group of eyewitnesses to the death of Jesus Christ. Verse 49. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed them from Galilee, followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. These were people who knew Jesus. These women had followed him all the way from Galilee. They'd, they'd been there with him since the beginning of his earthly ministry. For the past three years, they, they had followed him. They knew him well. These were his disciples, almost certainly including the 11 apostles. They were his followers. But were they following him now? Where were they now? They stood at a distance. They stood at a distance. Like Peter in Luke twenty-two fifty-four. they distanced themselves. As Peter denied Jesus three times, he, he physically distanced himself from Jesus. Now, unlike the crowds, Luke does not describe any emotional response from these disciples. They, they simply watched from afar. And this is yet another fulfillment of the psalm. Psalm 3811. My friends and companions stand aloof from my plague, and my nearest kin stand far off. Now, now King David originally penned that, that psalm experiencing, experiencing indifference to those around him over his sufferings. He experienced this in part, but Jesus Christ experienced it in full measure. The sufferings of King David pointed to this suffering of Jesus Christ. These disciples stood far off. Like Peter, they, they tried to be distant disciples, but distant discipleship is not sustainable. You'll either repent and close the gap, or you'll persist, and the distance between you and Jesus Christ will grow. So the question is then, what are they going to do next? We'll see, we see what some of them do next in just the next few verses. Verses 50 to 56 what Jesus' disciples said and did. The first disciple that Luke mentions is Joseph of Arimathea. This is the first time that, that Luke mentions him. And remarkably, Luke tells us that, that Joseph was a member of the council. He was part of the, the Sanhedrin. And Mark adds that he was respected among the council. This is the, the same group of men who had accused Jesus of blasphemy and handed him over to the Romans for, for crucifixion. And Joseph was one of them. But we're told that, that Joseph had not consented to their decision and action. Now, it's possible that he was absent, or from what we can see elsewhere of his character, it's possible he was silent as they were making this decision. 
Luke tells us that Joseph was a good and righteous man and that he was looking for the kingdom of God. Now Luke here is using similar terms to describe those who were were present close to Jesus' birth of of Zechariah and Simeon and Anna who were all looking for the kingdom of God. And now we see this righteous man here at Jesus' death. And Luke is telling us that, that John was a follower of Jesus Christ. Matthew 27, 57 says it directly that, that Joseph of Arimathea was a disciple of Jesus. But, Mark, uh, sorry, but John uh, 19, adds, Joseph of Arimathea was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, secretly for fear of the Jews. And apparently, he wasn't the only one. For in, in John 12, 42 and 43, we read that, that even many of the authorities believed in Jesus, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Joseph was a secret disciple out of fear of man. Friends, the fear of man is a snare. It's a snare. Jesus warns in, in Matthew 10, 28, and do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And in Luke 12, 9, Jesus warned that one who does not, so rather one who denies him before men will be denied before the angels of God. So like distant discipleship, secret discipleship is a dangerous thing if you try to stay there. But Joseph didn't stay there. Luke 23, 53. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Mark adds that he took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. He was no longer concerned with what his fellow members of the Sanhedrin thought, though he was almost certainly expelled from the Sanhedrin for this. He used his position and his influence to go to Pilate. So his fear of man melted away as he considered the death of Christ. And in verse 54, we read that Joseph took Jesus' body down from the cross, wrapped it in a linen shroud, and laid it in a tomb cut in stone where no one has ever yet been laid. This is yet another fulfillment, this time of Deuteronomy 21, verses 22 and 23, where where if a man had committed a crime that was punishable by death, he was put to death and to be hung on a tree. But his body was not to remain all night in the tree, but he was to be buried on the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. A hanged man is cursed by God. This is a stumbling block to Muslims who truly believe that Jesus was actually righteous. But they don't understand or believe that he could, as a righteous man, have possibly been cursed by God They don't understand that that though he was righteous, he was cursed by God. He bore the curse for your sin and for mine. So Jesus hanging there on the tree was cursed, but he was not buried under the curse. He was not buried in dishonor. He had endured the curse of God, but he had accomplished what he came to do, extinguishing the flames of God's wrath for our sins on himself. He died as a criminal, but he was buried in honor. John adds that the Pharisee Nicodemus had helped Joseph. These men, both of them, Joseph and Aramea and and Nicodemus, are presented as eyewitnesses of the fact that Jesus was truly dead. Nicodemus brought 75 pounds of spices, a very costly amount, to put in the linen cloths as as part of the, in accordance with the burial custom of the Jews. Remember, Nicodemus is the man who had also been a secret disciple. He'd come to Jesus secretly. Back in John 3, he was the one to whom Jesus had said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That's really the, the key verse that the Lord used to save me when I realized that I wasn't born again. Quite the opposite. He's also the one in the same time who said, to whom Jesus said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So these two men prepared the body of Jesus for burial. Matthew 27, 60 says that this was Joseph's personal tomb. 
and John 19.41, that it was near a garden. So that there was, it was in a garden near the place that he was crucified. Now just outside of the north wall in Jerusalem, a short distance from a cliff face that looks remarkably like a skull, very likely the location of Calvary, where Jesus was crucified, you could visit an ancient garden. And this garden is, is just, just a stone's throw from what is very likely Calvary. And this, this ancient garden evidently belonged to, to a, a rich man. You can see there's a, a large um, water supply there. And, and, and there in the, the side of that garden is a tomb that has been cut out of rock. Now, I don't know whether that is the actual tomb where, where Jesus was buried, but it's, it's remarkable. It's remarkable in, in the parallels. And in my opinion, it's, it's far more impressive than the gold and the, the statuary of the Roman Catholic Church of the Sepulchre, more in central Jerusalem. But whatever the actual location, Joseph's faith and faithfulness is a testimony to us as he carefully prepared the body of Jesus for burial. Joseph, again, is presented as an eyewitness of the death of Jesus and as a witness for Jesus. I see an application here for us. As we, as we think about, about Joseph of Arimathea, as we think about how he initially responded to Jesus, how he was, was initially a secret apostle, a secret disciple, rather. Now, you might be tempted to write somebody like that off. And also Nicodemus. Because they didn't openly share their faith with anybody. But you need to be careful here not to judge quickly. You don't know their circumstances. Don't, don't judge their story by the middle. You don't know their personal circumstances. and You don't know what God is doing in their hearts or what God will do in their hearts. And if they are the Lord's, as these men prove to be, the Lord will embolden them. There's a deeper question than, than what, what they did or didn't do. It's, it's are you bold for Jesus? Brothers and sisters, if you are the Lord's, he will embolden you. But finally and briefly, Luke tells us the response of another group of disciples, verse 55. The women who had come with Jesus from Galilee. And then again, we see Luke holding women in honor as, as he does repeatedly in his gospel account. This is, this is very countercultural in that, that, that misogynistic culture. These women were among the ones who were watching the death of Jesus from a distance. But they didn't stay as distant disciples any longer. They followed. They followed and they saw. Again, they're eyewitnesses. They, they followed Joseph and Nicodemus and they, they saw the tomb and how Jesus' body was laid. Then they themselves returned home and prepared more spices and ointments. Luke tells us that, that this was the day of preparation. Friday before sunset, as the Sabbath was about to begin, they made preparation. And then on the Sabbath, Luke tells us, they rested according to the commandment. Now Luke here is speaking of the fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, Exodus 28. So these, these women are presented as seeking to live a life in faithful obedience to God's law. So they rested on the Sabbath, but they would be back early Sunday morning. You realize that this, this coming Sabbath, this Saturday, would be the last Saturday Sabbath. Because with what was about to happen, the Sabbath would be changed to the first day of the week, the Lord's Day, Sunday. That's why the church gathers, not just this Resurrection Sunday, but every Sunday on the first day of the week to celebrate the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now consider the mental and spiritual state of these women as they waited. Full of anguish and doubt and fear. All day on that Saturday, they probably didn't sleep much of any of that, of that night. But are you, a faithful, are you a faithful disciple? Are you seeking to be obedient out of devotion to Jesus Christ? Are you trusting in Christ alone for your salvation? as you await the coming day. Now we know what happened on that Resurrection Sunday. But we're awaiting another day. We're awaiting the day of the return of the Lord. And, and many of us are going through 
very, very difficult, even horrific things in our lives. And, and we are maybe are full of anguish and doubt and fear. But we can await the coming day of the Lord because of that first resurrection Sunday. Jesus had promised that he would rise from the grave on the third day, and he has promised that, that he will return. He is faithful to his promises. So these women would return early Sunday morning to make a most unexpected discovery. Again, you and I know what that is, but they didn't. They didn't yet understand what was about to happen. You'll have to come back on Sunday to hear more about it. But Luke has shown us again a range of responses to the death of Jesus Christ. He's shown us that these eyewitnesses viewed the death of Jesus Christ through different spiritual eyes. Whether it was the centurion and the other soldiers who crucified Christ, now their perspective had begun to change. They had begun to see who Jesus Christ really was, but they weren't yet followers of Jesus Christ. Or the crowd who had sympathy for Jesus, but just went home and forgot about Jesus. Or the disciples, those who knew who Jesus really was, they, they had initially tried to be distant disciples, but they grew in their obedience and their devotion and confession of Jesus Christ. So as you behold the wonder of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, are you going to behold this as a mere bystander or as a disciple? Or as a disciple. And may we, through the power of the Holy Spirit, behold these things and live our lives in accordance with these truths. So that those around us will see that we are disciples. As we see our love for Christ, as we see our love for those around us, again, through the power of his Holy Spirit working in us. Let's pray. Almighty God, we behold the mystery. of the Lamb of God who died to take away the sin of the world. Lord, many of us here are beholding the mystery as those who believe the truth and have shaped our lives around this truth. We're having our lives transformed through this truth, through the power of your Holy Spirit. We praise you for this. But Almighty God, we also pray for those who have beheld these things afresh and have begun to have their, their perspective change, have begun to have their eyes open to who Jesus really is. May you, through the power of your Holy Spirit, bring them over the line and bring them into new life in Christ. May you cause them to be born again, that they might truly be followers of Jesus Christ. Lord, and for those who are tempted to merely go home, we pray that you would not let them rest. We pray that you'd help them to be cognizant of, of these truths, that they would not forget them, that they would before their, their hearts see Christ crucified and see their guilt before him and see that they need to turn to the one they've crucified, seeking forgiveness, the forgiveness that can only come through him. We ask this in the majestic and wonderful name of Christ, the crucified and risen Savior. Amen.